We're going to go ahead and go to our scripture reading this morning from John chapter 17, 16, excuse me, John chapter 16, and we're going to begin in verse 7. And so uh, let's go ahead and read this aloud from the board together. But I tell you the truth that it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. And I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for, me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. Let's go ahead and turn in your copy of God's word to John chapter 16 this morning as we just read. And while you're turning there, I want to mention something that uh, kind of happened to me whenever uh, we lived in Colorado Springs. I was, um, as you know, I'm kind of a bookworm, and one of my favorite things to do is just to kind of peruse a bookstore. And, and the best bookstore we had in Colorado Springs at the time was Family Christian Bookstore. Now, I don't think that store is in business anymore, uh, but I know at one point we had one in Little Rock. And we had a big one in Colorado Springs. And so while I was perusing it, there was a woman there who um, was looking for Bibles. And I guess I had the same color shirt on or something as the workers, because she asked me if I worked there. And I told her no. And she said, well, do you know anything about Bible translations? And I said, well, I I know a little bit, I think. Uh, Maybe I can help you. And uh, she said, well, I just don't know what to get. And so, and so I started kind of giving her the, the, run, the rundown of just about all the different translations, kind of figuring out what she's looking for and, and, and all of this. And, uh, and so at one point, as I was kind of helping her out, she kind of stopped and she said, who are you? <laughs> and, I, and I said, well, I'm, a, I'm one of the, the local pastors in the area. And she says, oh, what, what church do you pastor? And I, I told her uh, the name of the church. And she said, that's wonderful. Well, I go to, and she named the big charismatic church that was there in town. And, uh, and I said, you know, that's great. I wasn't there starting an argument or anything. And, and, we, were, and we were just talking and expressing the, how good the Lord is and all that. And she said, well, tell me something. Does your church speak in tongues? And I said, no, no, we don't, we don't practice that. We don't speak in tongues. And her response was, well, I'll pray for you. And the conversation ended. She was done with me. And she, she walked off. <clears throat> and, you know, and that's the kind of thing you, you run into sometimes when you talk about the work of the Holy Spirit. And uh, as you go to different churches and you talk to different Christians of different persuasions, those are kind of the things that you will run into. They'll ask you things like, well, is your church spirit-filled? Or is your church this or that? And, and sometimes they'll even just say, does your church believe in the Holy Spirit? which I find that to be a little insulting, you know? But anyway, so does your church believe in the Holy Spirit? Yes, we absolutely believe in the Holy Spirit. 
But the difference is, is that we allow the word of God to inform and instruct our belief in the spirit. We don't do so based on our experiences. And so that's what I I want to do throughout the study is to give you a good working understanding. And I'm not here to teach you how to win fights or anything like that. but, But my goal here is that so we here at Calvary Baptist Church will have a good understanding of who the Spirit is and how he works in the life of a Christian. And there's a basic framework that you need to understand in how the Spirit works in our lives. And it basically goes like this, that the Father, and it was talking about the basic outline of the work of the Trinity, we see that the Father, he willed our salvation. Ephesians chapter one, he, uh, it even uses language that he chose us before the foundations of the earth in some mysterious way. He has chosen us. He has willed our salvation salvation. The son accomplishes our salvation. He accomplished that through his righteousness and he accomplished that through his death and resurrection. And what we see the Holy Spirit does, his part in this, is that the Spirit applies salvation to our hearts. He takes what the Son has accomplished, which the Son accomplished what the Father willed, and he takes that and he applies it practically into our lives at the moment of belief and at the moment of justification. And so that is the basic framework that we need to understand uh, everything else that we're going to talk about and how the Spirit works. There are various ways and categories that we use to describe how he does this, and and we're going to cover those. But it's very important today that we understand that this is the framework that we are operating from. It is the framework that the Scriptures give us. Uh, A lot of Christians today think that unless there is kind of a, a sudden outburst or a spontaneous eruption of enthusiasm, unless that is happening, the Spirit is not working amongst us. That if there's not this sudden kind of outburst of of emotion, this sudden outburst of enthusiasm, then that means that the Spirit is not present with us. And when a lot of people, when they say talking about spirit-led, that's, that's what they mean. Beloved, that is not true. The spirit is always working in us. He is always working for us. And the Holy Spirit of God is always active in your life if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. He is always present. He is always doing his work. And if he isn't, then beloved, you're not saved. If the Spirit is not present in your life, you're not saved. In fact, Romans chapter eight, verse nine says that anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. And you see the danger here because if you think that the Spirit only works in those spontaneous moments of enthusiasm and you've never experienced one of those before, then you might be tempted to think that you somehow have less of the Spirit or that the Spirit is not working in your life. And beloved, that is not true. You are not less of a Christian. There's not haves and have-nots in the church. If you are saved, you have the Holy Spirit and he is working in your life. Now, I'm not discounting those experiences, don't get me wrong. By God's grace, they can and do occur. 
But what I am saying is that more often than not, most often, the spirit in your life is gonna work through the regular means that God has ordained. The word, prayer, fellowship, those kinds of things. That is how most of the time the spirit is going to work in our lives and move us toward greater Christ-likeness. And we're gonna talk about how he does that in following weeks. So we've talked about who the Spirit is, we've talked, and we're gonna spend a week talking uh, about what he does and how he works in our lives. We can't talk about everything, but, but what I wanna do is I wanna give you a framework to understand and to recognize when the Spirit is working in your life, even if it's not uh, this kind of spontaneous moment that, uh, that so often that we seek. Just as we are saved by Christ, so also we are saved by the Spirit, beginning with his work for us. And that's what I wanna talk about this morning. I've, I've kind of divided his work into three categories. His work for us, his work in us, and his work through us. And so what we're gonna do is we're gonna talk about the first one this morning is that we must respond to the Spirit's work for us. The Spirit is working for us even before you and I became believers in Jesus Christ. In fact, the Spirit has always been working for us, as we will see, from the very moment of creation. And so we must respond to that Spirit's work for us. And why must we do so? And basically, we're gonna look at John 16. We're gonna stretch it just a little bit, but we're gonna see two reasons this morning why we need to respond to the Holy Spirit's work for us. Two reasons. Number one, we must respond to the Spirit's work for us because the Spirit created the world. The Holy Spirit was involved in the creation of God. He was involved in the creation of the world and of the universe and of you and me. Now, if you look at, you say, Randy, where are you getting this? Well, I'm kind of stretching it a little bit, so uh, I wouldn't say, I, if you were to do this in a, your hermeneutics class, John, you would not pass, but, uh, <laughs> but I'm the pastor, so I can do this. So uh, anyway, uh, we're gonna stretch uh, John 16 just real quickly, but notice what, jo what Jesus says in verse five. He says, but now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me where you are going, but because I've said these things, sorrows filled your heart, et cetera, et cetera. Now, in verse seven, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now, I want you to notice that Jesus is going back to the one who sent him. And of course, who is that? God the Father, right? And he's going from there, he's going to send the helper and so where is the Spirit coming from? He's coming from God the Father and Jesus, right? Which, by the way, we'll talk about that a little bit later. But, so the point is, is that the Spirit, as we saw talking about his deity, the Spirit is God, and if he is God, then that must mean that even before he was fully revealed in the New Testament, we should be able to see him working in the Old Testament, and that is exactly what we see. And in fact, we see him much more clearly, really, even than we do Christ in the Old Testament, although we see Christ as well. 
But going back here, I want you to see that Jesus is, is talking about this. He says, if this is true, then we should expect to see the Spirit active from the very beginning, and that's what we see. And I'm not gonna go through everything. I'm just gonna go back to the beginning, which is creation. And if you look in Genesis chapter one, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was void and without form. Uh, and uh, uh, <laughs> thank you, Mark. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, Right? And so right there in Genesis chapter one, verse two, we find that the spirit is active and he is involved and he is working in creation. The spirit of God was moving over the face of the waters. Now, that's kind of a poetic expression. And uh, it's, it's, you know, it's not something that just grabs your attention right away. But the term moving is interesting because this is only one of two places that it appears in the entire Old Testament. And the other one describes an eagle who is, who is hovering over her young. In other words, it, it, it's divine superintendence. He is overseeing the work that is to be done. He guides it, he directs it, he fashions it, and he shapes it. Any of you who've ever worked in a factory, you could think of a foreman, right? That the foreman is sent from the big boss in order to oversee and make sure that the work is being done right, correct? Now, that's kind of a crude illustration. Don't take it too far. But in, the, in a way, in a very real way here, as God speaks, his word creates the heavens and the earth, and the spirit is the one who, like a foreman, who goes to the very surface and oversees and makes sure that the work is doing its work properly. He is, he is moving above the surface of the waters. In fact, there also seems to be a direct reference to him in chapter one, verse 26. When God begins to make man, what does he say? He says, let us make man in our image. Now, in the Old Testament, you might look at that and you may see, huh, that's a little confusing, but once the New Testament is revealed and we go back to the Old Testament, we understand what is happening there. That that is the holy conference of God amongst the Trinity uh, agreeing amongst themselves to create man in their image, in our image. And so we see that, that not only is the Spirit of God directly involved in fashioning the earth and the universe, but he is also directly involved in creating us. God's not speaking to angels here. We're not, we're not made in the image of angels. We're not made in the image of beast or anything like that. We're made in the image of God. And what we see here by hint, we understand through further revelation in the New Testament that this is the Trinity speaking there's a lot of revelation concerning the Spirit's work in creation, but there's not a lot of it, but we do see him in Job chapter 26, verse 13. Job says, or, or one of the speakers, says that by his wind, talking to the Lord, by his wind, the heavens were made fair, his hand pierced the fleeing serpent. And again, that's a kind of a poetic expression, but that word wind there is actually ruach, which is Hebrew for spirit. So it's actually a reference to the Holy Spirit. Psalm 33, six, we see the exact same thing. By the word of the heavens, by the word of Yahweh, the heavens were made and by the breath of his mouth, all his host. And then once again, that word breath is actually the word spirit. 
And by the way, do you see the, keep that verse up there for a second. Do you see, do you see the Trinitarian connection there? By the word of Yahweh, who's the word? John 1, 1, right? Jesus. And by his spirit, by the spirit of his mouth, all their host, who's the spirit? It's the Holy Spirit, right? So again, we see hints, not, not full revelation, but we see hints of the Trinity here. We serve an awesome God. So awesome, in fact, that the very wind that he used to form words was powerful enough to create everything we see. Turn to your neighbor and say, how you doing? How many of you felt the wind from that little word coming off. How many of you felt a breeze from when they formed those words? You may have smelt it, but you didn't feel it, right? That's pretty, that's pretty weak wind, right? And yet that was enough from God to create everything we see. How awesome is our God? Amen? How awesome is our God. We need to sing that song, guys. Our God is an awesome God. He reigns from heaven above. So why are we focusing on creation? Because aside from redemption, creation is God's greatest work. Aside from our salvation, creation is God's greatest work. And that's one of the reasons why I think it's so heavily attacked today in our schools. And so we establish here that the spirit was involved in creation. And if we do that, then we must understand that the spirit is God with all the rights and privileges thereof. We get a glimpse of the inner workings of the Trinity, the division of work that they covenant together to do. The spirit is involved directly in all of God's work from the very beginning. So that's one reason we're focusing on creation, but let's bring it down to the so what. Why must we understand that the Spirit was involved in creation? So what? What does it mean that the Spirit created us just as Jesus created us, just as God the Father created us? What does that mean? Because knowing that the Spirit created us as well as the Father and the Son establishes that He is God over us, that He is our Lord. And just like any inventor on earth, just like any creator on earth, if God created us, then he has sovereign rights over us. He has the right to tell us what to do. He has the right to tell us what our lives are supposed to be like. He has the right to tell us that this is how the world works, not like that. And all these Johnny-become-latelys who are trying to tell us that, oh no, we've been wrong for 6,000, 9,000 years, and no, this is the way that it's really supposed to work, I beg to differ. Not because I think so, but because God said so. And if he is creator, then that means he has the sovereign right to interrupt our lives for whatever purpose that he pleases and for whatever he wants to do. He has, we belong to him. He is our creator. We, he has a right to say when and where and how far we go in life. He calls us to whatever it is that he wants to call us for. And think about this. What, what does this come down to in the church? Think about this in terms of, of, of the Corinthian church. You remember 1 Corinthians? What are they all doing? Among many other things. 
One of their problem is that they're all arguing over each other over whose spiritual gift was better, right? They're all jealous of one another. They're all saying, well, well, I may not be able to heal, but I can speak in tongues. That makes me better than you. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Peter. And you've always got the spiritual ones. Well, I follow Jesus, you know, uh, whatever. They're, they're all arguing over which teacher they follow. They're all arguing over who, whose spiritual gift is better, and look what Paul tells them. And we looked at this verse last week, but, but 1 Corinthians 12, 11, look what Paul tells them here. He says, look, guys, everything you're doing is from the same spirit. Doesn't matter what your gift is. Your gift is no better than anyone else's. He apportions to each one individually as he wills. Beloved, you don't need to be jealous of anyone else in the church just because they're doing something that might be something you might wanna do or might be something that you wish you could do better or something. You don't need to be jealous. The Spirit has gifted you individually and perfectly for what he has called you to do. And if he created us, then that means he has the right to do so. Amen? When we're jealous of the Spirit, then that means that we think we know better than God. That's dangerous. Adam and Eve thought that. Others have thought that. It didn't go well. The spirit apportions gifts as he wills. Our response is to stir up the gifts which the spirit gives us. I don't think I wrote this one down, but 1 Corinthians 14, 37, Paul says, look, if anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a commandment of the Lord. Beloved, you can't be spiritual and denying the word of God. You can't be spiritual and going against what God has done and said. It is the spirit who is God. And because he created the world, he has sovereign rights over all of us. How many of you have a smartphone in here? Eh, most everybody. And whenever you signed onto your smartphone, you had that long legal thing that you, that none of us read, right? We just clicked okay. Well, you know what, it, you know what that thing said? It said, whether you're Apple or Google, whatever it is, said, we made this software and we have the right to tell you how to use it. And beloved, God made us. He has the right to tell us what to do. Amen. So we surrender to the Spirit. But also, this is not all. Why else must we respond to the Spirit's work for us? Because not only did he create the world, but he convicts the world. And I've been reading this verses now, this patch of verses now for, uh, for several weeks because we've been really doing topical sermons and, uh, and just kind of using this verse to kind of get us in the right head space before we study the Holy Spirit. But I haven't really exegeted them properly. I've, I've probably been driving art crazy back there. But uh, <laughs> I haven't really exegeted them properly, but, uh, but now we're gonna do that because Jesus says the first work that he does for us in the work of salvation is that he convicts the world. Look, at, look what it says, beginning in verse eight. And when the spirit comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. 
Sin, righteousness, and judgment. Jesus, in his last night with the disciples, is telling them that he's about to leave them. He's about to go to the one who sent him, the Father. And when he does, he's going to send the Spirit back to us. And of course, we know that happens some 53 days or so later on the day of Pentecost. Jesus refers to the Spirit in a couple of different ways. He calls him the helper, and he calls him the Spirit of truth. And the question is, is how does the Spirit help us? What does this mean That word helper, it means someone who comes to your aid, someone who comes by your side. He comes to intercede and interrupt on our behalf. And how does he do this? Well, the first way he does that is that Jesus says that he convicts us. He convicts us. The English word convict has two senses. One of them is in a court of law when you are convicted. That means you're guilty. You're you're under conviction right? The other one is really talking more about convincing. Like I live by conviction. These are things that I am convinced of. And I think that's the better way to understand that here, that, that, that when the spirit comes to the world, he's going to convince the world of three realities that we see here. Number one, he convicts the world of sin, Convicts the world of sin. There's some debate as to what this means and I'm not gonna bore you with the details. Let me just give you what I think is the best interpretation. Notice that this is the Spirit's work to the world, right? He convicts the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Now, let me ask you a question. Are Christians of the world? No, we're in the world. At one point, we were of the world, but we're not in the world anymore. Jesus is talking to his disciples, right? In fact, if you go back and look at, um, um, in, in chapter 15, uh, verse 19, he says, but if you were of the world, um, the world would love you as, at its own, but because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So we're not of the world. So, so this, is, this is the Spirit's first work to the world, and that he convicts them of sin. He convinces them of sin. And what is happening here is that when the Spirit of God begins to work in the heart of a person who is still of the world, the first thing he convinces them of is their sin. The first thing he draws to their attention, he exposes their heart. He causes them to recognize that they are a sinner. And he shows it to them. In fact, that word convict in the Greek, it actually has the idea of exposing, of putting it to light, of making it known. Imagine there was a DVD of every, everything of your life, everything you've ever done, everything you've ever said, everything you've ever thought. And I give that CD to Mark and say, hey, let's watch Brother Roy's CD today. What do you say? That'd be a lot of fun. How many of you would come back next week? You're not doing that to me, right? I don't want that CD shown, right? None of us do. None of us do. You guys don't want to know what's going on in here. Trust me, I don't want to know half the time. And so, but that's what the Spirit does is that he shows it and he doesn't show it to the world. He shows it to us. He convicts the world. He exposes our heart. He, he brings us to a point to where we understand the gravity of our sin. 
It's not just in a general sense either. You know, everybody will tell you today, I know I'm not perfect. I, I know I make mistakes, uh, but I think I'm a pretty good person. That's, that's not what the Spirit is doing. Notice how Jesus defines this in verse nine. He says, he's gonna go back in every one of these and he's gonna tell us what he means. <laughs> Excuse me. And in verse nine, he says, because they do not believe in me. You see, the sin that, that the Spirit convicts us of is not just a general awareness that we are sinners, that we are not perfect, but, the, but it's the personal nature of it. Sin because they do not believe in me. It's not just general feelings of guilt, but it is centered around Christ. In other words, when a person falls under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, he doesn't just admit that he's a sinner. He comes to understand that he is guilty before God. This is not just a general sense of guilt and bad feelings. It is a sense that God has a perfect standard and I stand in conviction of it. I am guilty. I have sinned. I am a sinner. All sin is born out of unbelief, unbelief in God's sovereignty and unbelief in God's goodness. And the spirit breaks our heart. He causes us to see our rebellion against God and all of its terrible nature. And we come to the place that we hate it. We know we're guilty. We know we've done it. He turns the light on in our soul so that we come to understand that we are in a desperate, poor condition he brings us to our shame, convinces us of our guilt in order to bring about repentance. In order to bring us to that point that we are ready to repent of our sins. And that is the first conviction. And he goes on to say, he convicts the world of righteousness. Convicts the world of righteousness. What does this mean? You see, it's not enough to just except that I'm guilty before God. See, if I'm only convinced that I'm guilty before God, then I can just kind of turn over a new leaf, right? I can start over. I can, I can just, uh, okay, well, I'll do better next time, you know? I can do whatever. If I'm, you know, um, I, I mean, I'm, I'm good. There's a chance I can turn over a new leaf. I can stop doing the things I did. I can just stop doing all that and I'll be fine, Right? But it's not enough to be convinced of guilt. You must be convinced of the standard, of the standard. See, the spirit, when he is working in someone's heart, he convinces them that the only standard that qualifies us for, us for life is the perfect, flawless, perfect righteousness of God himself. That if we want to have eternal life, we must be as righteous as God is. And what is that of the righteous standard? Look what he says in verse 10. He says, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you see me no longer. What, is that, what does that mean, I, I go to the Father? How does that depict righteousness, the standard? You know, I don't know, I wonder if Jesus had Psalm 24 in mind when he said this. Look at Psalm 24 for a moment. I don't have it on the board. You're gonna wanna turn there. Psalm 24. You know this as the Ascension Psalm. It comes right after Psalm 23 and Psalm 22. A wonderful collection of, of songs here. 
But in Psalm 24, I want you to notice, beginning in verse three, he says, who shall ascend to the hill of Yahweh? Who shall stand in his holy place? Good question, right? Verse four, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. You know, often when I hear this passage preached, it goes something like this. Who can ascend to the hill of the Lord? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. So beloved, you need to clean your hands. You better be pure of heart if you wanna be able to go to heaven. You better not lie. You better not give your soul to falsehood. How many of us have lied? Some of you are lying right now. (laughs) How many of us have clean hearts? Aside from the washing of regeneration of Jesus Christ, how many of us in and of ourselves has clean hearts of our own? Do you understand that Psalm 24 is telling us that you and I are not qualified to ascend to the hill of Yahweh? Psalm 24 is telling us that we cannot do it. And that's the whole question of the Psalm. Who can do this? John asked me, who can ascend to the hill of the Lord? I'm glad you asked. The Psalm answers the question in verse seven. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors. The king of glory is coming in. Who can ascend to the hill of the Lord? It is not us. It is the king of glory. He is the one who ascends to the hill of the Lord. He is the one who has a clean hands. He is the one who has a pure heart. He is the one who has not given his soul to what is false or practiced deceitfulness. The king of glory is the one who ascends to the hill of the Lord. Who is the king of glory? Glad you asked. Verse eight. Who is this king of glory? Yahweh. Strong and mighty. Yahweh, strong, mighty in battle. You see, it is the Lord who has defeated the enemy. He has defeated sin. He has defeated the curse. He has defeated death himself. And now through his own righteousness, he has ascended to the throne of God. And by through his righteousness, you and I can enter in through Jesus Christ. He's the one. So going back to John 16 concerning righteousness, why? Because I go to the Father, beloved, read that in light of Psalm 24. He is the king of glory and he ascends to the hill of Yahweh, strong and mighty, mighty in battle. The spirit convinces us, convicts us and shows us that the very righteousness that we need is Christ. He is our righteousness. And if you want to have a shot at heaven, if you want to have assurance of your salvation, we must depend on his righteousness and not ours. He convicts us of sin, but he convicts us also of the divine standard. It is absolute, perfect, holy righteousness. And if you don't have that, then you're lost. And there's no other way. God does not allow sin into his heaven. 
The Spirit convinces us, convicts us. He opens our mind, he frees our will, and he calls us to respond to Christ in faith alone. Amen? The very righteousness we need, we're convinced of our guilt, and we'd say, what do we do? And he shows us Christ. He shows us his righteousness. He shows us his death and resurrection and ascension. And the Spirit tells us that my only hope is Jesus Christ. And I go running to him. And I find that his arms are open wide, ready to receive me as his own, declares me just as righteous as Jesus is, takes the righteousness of Christ puts it on my account and says, you belong to me. You are mine. Beloved, that God does not knock on the door of our hearts. He bursts in, he busts the door down and he declares, you are mine. I love you and I'm taking you home. We serve an awesome God. Awesome God. And he convinces us of judgment. Concerning judgment, we'll skip on down to verse 11, because the ruler of this world is judged. Not only are we guilty, not only are we convinced of the righteous standard, but we are convinced of our accountability before God. God is not gonna leave us in rebellion forever, beloved. He will not allow his creation to rebel against him for much longer and we will be accountable of our sin before God. And I want you to notice once again that this conviction is centered on the work of Christ that because the ruler of this world is judged, you see when the spirit's conviction comes upon us, we understand that if we choose to remain in the world, then we will fall under the judgment of the ruler of this world. You want to jump on his team? You got to wear the t-shirt. God convinces us of judgment. He He convicts us of our sin and he gives us two choices. We can ascend to the hill of Yahweh on the righteousness of Christ alone or we can choose to remain in the world and we can face the judgment that is coming to the world. That's our choices. That's our choices. There is no second chance after we leave this world. Beloved, there is no purgatory, although Arkansas July's might make you wonder. There is no purgatory, there's no second chance. This life is it. You choose to enter into the hill of Yahweh based on the righteousness of the king of glory, or you choose to remain in the world and face the judgment that's coming to the world. When the Spirit's conviction come upon us, we understand that if we do not respond to Christ, we will be judged. We will be judged. Hebrews chapter two, verses two and three, one of the warning passages of Hebrews says this, for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, watch this, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Beloved, if the Spirit is convicting you this morning, if the Spirit is talking to you this morning, you must respond. You must respond. 
If he is convincing you of your need for a savior, do not resist him. I don't care how long you've been a member of this church. I don't care how long you've been going to church. Beloved, if you are of the world and you are feeling the conviction, the heat of God's word in your life and it's becoming clear to you and you are coming to understand that you need a savior, do not resist, come to Christ. Trust in his righteousness alone. He lived and earned the righteousness that you need. He died to take your penalty And now he is risen again, ascended to the right hand, to the very throne of God. And he's offering himself as a rescue from his own wrath to you. A deliverer. The word we'd like to use in the church is savior. If you don't know Christ, I beg you to come forward today. Don't blaspheme against the Holy Spirit and reject his testimony of Christ. Don't do that. Come to Christ today so that you can have eternal life. Our Father, we thank you for your wonderful Holy Spirit. We thank you that you are our God, that you have not only willed and accomplished salvation, but you have also brought it to us. Lord, were it not for the Spirit bringing it to us, we could never ascend to the hill We could never ascend to your holy mountain. But Father, you have brought it to us. You've done all the work. And I pray this morning that your spirit even now is is convincing, convicting. Maybe there's a Christian here this morning that has not been living in light of their salvation. Maybe there's a sin that is besetting them. Maybe there's a weight that they're carrying that is hindering them. Father, this morning, I pray your convincing work, your convicting work through your Holy Spirit will speak to them and that they will come to a greater understanding of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray all of this in your name, amen. I'm gonna ask Brother Art and Brother John to come on forward. I'm gonna be down there as well. If you have a need this morning, let's stand. And I'm just gonna ask you to bow your heads for a moment and respond. Just think about the things we've said. And if there's a need this morning, I invite you to come. Maybe, maybe you're wrestling with a sin in your life that you want prayer for. Maybe you're here this morning and you know, you know that you know that you do not know Christ as your savior. I pray maybe you would come forward this morning. Whatever your need is, we invite you to come. I invite us all to bow our heads and just uh, reflect on the Spirit's work in our life.